Hey, assalamu alaikum friends. Hope you're well, inshallah. Hope you've been enjoying your summer break. I have been, uh, hence the delays in publishing episodes. Uh, but alhamdulillah, we managed to record like four or five. And so we'll be uh, dropping new episodes over the next four or five weeks uh, consistently. Inshallah, you'll enjoy these episodes. In this episode today, I'm going to be speaking with Melanie L. Turk. She is the CEO and co-founder of a brand called Hot Hijab. Now, you may have seen this brand. It's uh, probably one of the most popular hijab brands in the world, actually. Um, so we kind of go into the story of how Hot Hijab came to be, uh, the challenges Melanie's faced in her entrepreneurial journey, um, as well as generally kind of like the whole culture around hijab and fashion uh, and Muslim entrepreneurship. So inshallah, uh, sit back, relax, whatever you're doing, enjoy the conversation. Assalamu alaikum, Melanie, how are you? Alhamdulillah, how are you? We are well, we are well. Uh, we were just having a little brief chat before I, I hit the record button. We were talking about the, the woes of millennial Muslims. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I love it. And hopefully uh, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, Melanie, uh, you are the founder of Ot Hijab, and I hope I've pronounced that properly. Yeah. As far as I can see, it's probably the biggest hijab brand, uh, at least in the Western world. Uh, in fact, I was doing some SEO research on you guys recently uh, as part of our brand partnership. And I realized when you search hijab globally, actually, Hot Hijab is on the, on the first page, which is really impressive. Um, so, so I wanted to kind of uh, take you back to the beginning of this journey, really, mm-hmm. um, and tell us about how Hot Hijab came to be. Sure, sure. So I have to correct you. I am the co-founder. Co-founder, sorry. Co-founder. I um, I can't take all the credit. My former husband. Um, I don't like to say ex-husband. I think it's it's so uh, it's such a like a negative connotation. My former husband and I, we started the brand together, and this was back in 2010. So this is pre-Instagram. This is pre, you know, like. Uh, Snapchat. This is like pre-hijabi influencer. This is a time when it's almost taboo to say Muslim fashion, hijab mm. fashion. That was like, yo, we, I mean, I don't even know. I didn't feel comfortable having models on the website. That's how far back this is. Cause that wasn't something we saw. Uh, but nonetheless, my husband at the time, um, he came up with the idea. It was actually his idea, which is why I cannot take credit for being the founder. I, you know, we're co-founders for sure. It was a joint effort. He knew what my passions were in life, which is, you know, social justice. I come from the legal field. I'm a civil rights attorney by profession, but I have this real knack for fashion, for hijab, for Muslim women, for our community. And he was like, you know, this needs to exist. It might feel uncomfortable, but you all go to great lengths to make sure your outfits look stylish and nice. And why can't there be a brand that does that for your hijab? Mm. And it made a ton of sense to me. And I knew we would kind of rock the boat because it was so novel. But I, I, that's me. I am meant to rock the boat. Nothing about me is normal, conventional. Uh, <laughs> I, I push boundaries and I feel really comfortable in that space. Alhamdulillah. And so I was like, yeah, this does make total sense. And then we just kind of went from there. And the impetus was there was two pieces that were really important to me. Number one, I started wearing hijab at 13. 
And it came naturally to me, alhamdulillah, but it was a struggle in terms of the hijab itself, the fabrics, what I had. I had two hijabs, one black, one white from overseas where my dad is from, Lebanon. And it was, it, it totally was cramping my style. Like I, he, my husband was right. I put together his whole outfit and then the hijab just ruined it. And it mm. took me years to find my own style. I would go to thrift shops and find vintage scarves that would fit in with my aesthetic. And I knew that there were so many women like me who struggled with just finding a beautiful, high quality hijab that really fit into your style as opposed to going against it. And then secondly, as a community leader in Detroit, Michigan, where I'm from, I saw that the majority of girls coming up were not wearing hijab. And if mm. you were. And that was the exact opposite of my experience at their age. Most of us wore hijab, a few didn't. And that's cool, but I wanted to understand why. And mm -hmm. so if I could instill a love for hijab in these girls, like I had growing up, if I could show them examples of women who are successful in society because they wear hijab and not despite wearing it or in spite of wearing it, then I thought, all right, maybe I can do some good here of allowing women to see the beauty in hijab where maybe they're not seeing it. Because we, who did we have to look up to? This is pre, like, you know, Halima running a, a down a runway, walking down a runway, or Ibtihaj at the Olympics, or um, Ilhan Omar in Congress. Like, we had no one to look up. It was like our mothers. Yeah. And God bless them, but we didn't necessarily, you know, we... They didn't really speak the language of the country we lived in. A lot of them didn't work necessarily. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's like, I wanted to show women who they could be mm. in job and integrated in society still. And that was, like I said, the impetus of how it was born and how I felt comfortable to maneuver within this space and eventually leave my legal career and do this full time. It's interesting because as as Western uh, millennial Muslims, we face like a very unique set of circumstances. Um, for the most part, of course, uh, bar barring reverts, you know, our parents have migrated here from countries, like you said, from the Middle East, uh, South Asia, uh, Africa and places like this. And, you know, they did their best really just to kind of make sure that there's uh, food on the table, a roof on our head. Right. And a, a path towards success for us in terms of a career and education and stuff like that. Amazing, important stuff, right? Like really, really important. They instilled that cultural uh, heritage. Um, and if we were lucky, because obviously this isn't the case for um, a lot of Muslims, actually. Um, and if we were lucky, then they also instilled those Islamic values and, mm -hmm. and taught us how, to, how we can exist uh, here in the West uh, whilst maintaining our Islamic identities. Right. And so despite their best efforts right even the best of of parents we were still kind of left like you know trying to figure out a bunch of stuff that was i mean look it's not really something that anyone could have predicted because society has moved so much uh has, has moved so rapidly especially in the last like you know 20 years 30 years especially after the you know post 9-11 era mm -hmm. where all of a sudden like muslims had to kind of you know sit up and you know, pay attention to the fact that they are this thing called Muslim and mm -hmm. this label is being tarnished and now they have to kind of live with this identity. And what makes me so proud, uh, Melanie, honestly, like it makes me so, so proud because now you reflect back at it. And despite despite having that and despite, you know, the media's attempt to diminish our, 
you know, dignity even. Mm-hmm. We 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 fought back. That's Our right. generation, we we fought back and we said, nope, we're not we're not we we've we've read the books here. We know this language, we know this culture, we know how to rap, we know how to we know how to design, mm-hmm. we know how to do fashion. We're gonna use these things that you try to use to downgrade us, we're going to use it to upgrade ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to watch you kind of now uh, real. And now, like, you know, we're 20 years on from 9-11, and you can see that there's such confidence amongst young Muslims, for the most part. Of course, there are still many Muslims that don't necessarily feel that kind of confidence. But honestly, for the, for the majority of it, like, I feel like we've done a really good job, alhamdulillah. Um, and, and, and it's taken people like you to kind of be those mavericks that put their necks on the line. Um, to experiment with culture and experiment with, um, like you know, fashion and identity and and questioning, you know, what is normal and 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 what's you know what's acceptable and 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 I think you know if, from from a from a male perspective and looking at this whole like hijab and modesty, and modest fashion um, kind of paradigm. I'm going to be real with you. Like when this whole kind of like uh, hijabi influencer thing started, right? So I must have been what twenty two. So I was a young, fired up Muslim man. The classic, you know, halal police. Like, oh, this is corrupting <laughs> the sisters, right? Um, what is this? This is not, you know, like all the and 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 I think that emotion is understandable, right? Because especially if you've grown up in a conservative family, and now all of a sudden you're opening up your Instagram feed and it's it's not that, and you're like, huh? What's going on? Like, what? Is, what? What's, what is all this stuff? So, again, it's all part of that thing that we've had to go through. We had to go through this process to figure it out. You know, fast forward five, six years later, I get married, and my wife's from California, and um, I'm from London. So, seeing that complete different, like, um, diff- the complete difference in culture, really, mm-hmm. right? Like, is in I'm from London, you know, seeing a Seeing a non-hijabi is is more of a like you know that that's where you're more surprised, right? In certain areas. Um, whereas I've come here to California when I first visited her, and I was like, oh, now I see why it was difficult for you. Like now I understand because it's like it's just completely different here. Like as in, you know, it's a complete different set of norms, fashion, all of it. Mm-hmm. And then, like, obviously, throughout the marriage journey, realizing that you know, a woman's appearance is not always dictated by her wanting to attract a man right that's a that's a common misconception i guess certain brothers would have and again these are all semi-understandable things until you fully get married and like you know dig deep um and that's when i realized hold on a sec like it makes sense that there are these modest fashion hijabi influences out there and and really, they're just human beings just trying to figure it out themselves. Totally. And 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 some of them are taking the hijab off, mm-hmm. right? I remember when the whole Dina Tokyo thing happened, and everyone's like, "Oh, chaos." And I'm like, "I get it." Like, obviously, like, fine. And you know, I could have said, "I told you so," because, like, you know, eight years ago, I predicted this on my angry Twitter feed and said, "There, eh, she's gonna corrupt the sisters." <laughs> but I was like, you know, ultimately, that's that's her authentic story, right? And and if anything. The, the the sisters that were following her that then remained hijabis after that, they are now better hijabis than they were before, you know, the, the influencer took off her hijab because they've had to now recommit to that decision almost, you know? Um, well, yeah. It's, it, 
it allows one to say, some people got really agitated. And this, this is true with her. It's true with, um, you know, when Asya Adekwait took her hijab off. And, you know, it's not without purpose. SubhanAllah, Allah's will is so intentional. These women got so influential and huge within the space that girls who looked up to them, it was now a question of, do you wear hijab because they do? Mm. Do you wear it because it's mm. what's in your heart and it's what you are doing for yourself and for Allah? On the flip side of that too, perhaps for women whose journey includes having to remove it in order to get back to it, it gave mm. them the courage to remove mm. it. Mm. Not everyone's journey is linear and always growing in a exponentially higher degree towards Allah. Sometimes you have to hit rock bottom and mm. lose your iman completely mm. before you mm. can come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And perhaps removing the hijab, being away from it, being away from what it means to you, what it, what it represents, is what you need to return to it. And those girls who took off hijab gave them implicit permission to do that. So we don't know the wisdom behind these things, but I truly believe it is all with hikmah. It's just for us on the outside looking in, it's like, oh no, how could that happen? This is going to have such a detrimental effect. But we don't realize, we, we're so stuck on what good and what bad is, what halal and what haram is. We don't know. We have no clue. We have no clue. We need to get our heads out of this very dogmatic understanding of what good and bad is. We don't know something mm. seemingly bad could save your life. Mm, mm, it could bring mm. you back to Allah in a way that it would that you would never have been that close to Him, but for that quote unquote bad thing. See, and 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 you're completely right. And and the thing is, is that like Muslim men will go through that journey and that experience, right? Like, isn't it happens? But because we're not wearing a hijab on our head. Right. We don't have the world judging us and saying, hey, you've left the deen. Or like, you know what I mean? Like, you're going through a bit of a spiritual lull. But like, That's right. You're doing right. it in the, in the privacy of your own home, other people's mm. homes, whatever it mm. is that y'all are getting up to. Mm. We don't, we're not privy to it. But y'all are going through your, your own journeys, falling, getting back up, falling, getting back up. We just do it outwardly. Mm. Mm. And I think that's that's like I think the it's like the interesting and unique experience of of being a hijabi Muslim woman that really only a hijabi Muslim woman can you know uh, explain right because visibly you guys are out there do you know what I mean like isn't you're there. And and the minute someone sees you, you know, they're like, okay, that's a Muslim woman, for example. But a Muslim man could be in the middle of a nightclub, right? And there's no there's no judgment towards him because, you know, at worst he could just be uh, you know, a South American dude. Do you get know what I mean, right? With a beard, right? Um so so it's 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 a very unique kind of thing. Um I remember even like, you know, growing up as a teenager, um, and 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 like when some of the Muslim guys started going to nightclubs and all this kind of stuff started happening in school and a lot of them started even drinking and everything. Sure. And they'll be like, oh my God, it's a com it's completely messed up out there. I was like, why? What happened? They're like, I saw a hijabi in the line for the nightclub. And I was like, what? You, you were there too. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like you, you were there, right? Um, 
So that's when I first started like becoming aware of like these these I guess double standards, mm-hmm. um, and I guess that I don't I don't like using the term misogyny, but I guess that's where that, you know like that cultural mis- misogyny of of like you know treating girls differently. Um, it kind of like links to that. Sure. Um, why are you uncomfortable using that term? Uh, I'll be very honest with you. Um, I. Like when it comes to like the the feminist discourse, uh, feminism discourse rather, mm-hmm. I find a lot of the terminology to be very general and divisive. Mm-hmm. So it has an ability to generalize. Even when I just say, for example, feminist, it's such a general term, right? Then mm-hmm. I have to go very very specific into the specific type of feminism that I would want to say is good or bad or whatever it might be. Okay. So. It, it, when we when we say misogyny, all of a sudden it's, it kind of brings up all these, you know, all this extra baggage that might mm-hmm. not necessarily be true. And then all of a sudden it's like you know it paints it as like this kind of dict- dictatorial yeah. culture, which it isn't. There's like a lot of like little mini intersections there uh, that we have to be aware of. I get what you're um, saying. Discussion for another day, Melanie. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so tell me about the. Let's return back to the Autojob journey. So, in t- in 2010, you've you've started this. How did it look in 2010? Like, tell me about the technical process of starting a hijab business before the era of Instagram. Mm, well, for me, I was in a place where I knew that if we were going to be successful, we had to present ourselves like we were Chanel. Because the stereotype or the understanding or assumption was that if you're a Muslim-owned brand, you're somehow very unprofessional. You're going to get ripped off. You're, you know, like, that was just the understanding, and I hated that. So it was like, we are going to have to go 110% in everything we do. We've got one shot. And if anything falls short, the customer will be like, you say, yeah, that's what I thought. That's what you get. It's kind of like the African-American experience in America. They have to try double, triple, quadruple as hard as their mm. white counterparts because they're already so far behind. Uh, not to compare struggles, but it's that same kind of thing where I knew that we had to bring our A game when it came to the website, the product, the emails, the every, the messaging, the, the imagery, everything had to be so tight and so um you know a plus a one mm-hmm. in order for us to have a shot and so i did that and as a perfectionist type a like really i'm god has been breaking my nuts and, and teaching me <laughs> to, to not do that but a very controlling at the time type of person it was in my nature anyway and so that's how we just kind of like smashed through and but while still being very cognizant of the temperament at the time, you know, like the, the environment at the time, like I said, it was very delicate. Um, there was a delicate balance between fashion and faith and, and the two of them somehow being, they could not be mutually exclusive. Mm. And so um, then Instagram hit and that changed the game because pre Instagram, it was, that was the world I was living in. I never showed my face. People didn't, unless they were on the Facebook page. Mm-hmm. But even then it was like, you saw me like a couple times. It was just about the brand. It was like, I wanted mm-hmm. hijab to be like Zara. You don't know who we are. You just see the brand name. 
and yeah. it's professional and it's beautiful and it's everything you want and it's great service. Maybe Zara is not a good example, but you know what I mean? Like you don't know who's behind it. Yeah. And then, um, that worked for a while. And we built this community on Facebook because that was really our only social media platform that worked. Business pages had just started in 2010. And we built this small little cult following of women here in the U.S. that were thirsty for a brand that was speaking exclusively to them. Mm. And I put the name hijab in the brand very intentionally. So Muslim women knew we didn't start as a hijab brand. It was a clothing brand, modest clothing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted the word hijab in there so they knew this is for you. This is for you. And secondly, to keep me on track, because I Mm. always had this fear of what's the word like falling off, getting distracted, getting sucked into the to the dunya stuff. And I Mm. I wanted to keep myself in check. And having that word in there made me stay in line because uh, there's no way around it. Like I put the word hijab in here. We don't do this thing. So like Amazing. Said, Instagram changed everything. It was like it was like a completely new trajectory. Yeah, yeah, and especially especially for like fashion, right? Because Instagram, I remember like my first experience of Instagram was more with, I guess, like scenery and nature and stuff, because that's like what I'm into. Um, and then, like very quickly, it you know it it kind of naturally itself, I guess, uh, evolved into this platform where people were obviously selfies was like a new thing and like, oh, taking selfies and using filters and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then, I, yeah, then outfits became a thing, right? Like, cause I remember that hashtag and it took me a year to figure out what was going on when people were saying, OOTD. I'm like, what is auto? Like what's going on here? Like, <laughs> um, and so, so, so yeah, then, I, then, then, yeah, it just, it just escalated. So I guess that's really what what drove Hotel Job. So would you say that that was like your first milestone moment? Like, what, what do you recall as being like the first milestone moment? Where you're like, okay, boom, this is like we're going places. Um, yeah, I, I would say I think when we launched our clothing line, we were still in Chicago. This is still pre Instagram when we finally actually launched the brand because we took a year just to build a community around it, mm. build a, a, like an audience. And then actually launching with the clothing that we did, which looked so different, but elegant and beautiful and formal and just kind of defining, redefining what hijab could mean and look like and Mm. how you dress as a hijabi and still look really, really, really beautiful and not frumpy and drab and all of these things that we kind of associated with it, Mm. or at least, you know, like our older generation, perhaps. And so that for me, I think was the first milestone of just the imagery of seeing these beautiful, beautiful cl- pieces of clothing on a hijab wearing woman. And it was like, oh, okay. And I feel like we kind of did that again in 2018 when we launched our luxury collection. It was like these images of this like hijab wearing woman with a crown on her head and she looks so regal and so beautiful. And again, we wanted to, to push the limits and boundaries of what someone could even think about hijab. And we had non-Muslims who were like, I would wear this. Mm. And it was just art. It was just beauty. It was just beauty. It was Mm. no longer headscarf hijab. It was just beauty. And that was what I was trying to accomplish. So I would say that was the first milestone was finally launching that clothing line. And then the second one, yeah, I would say what was most influential or or a a kind of like a moving trajectory was, yeah, Instagram. And then now me putting my face in front of camera. Now I am now becoming the face of the brand. 
And that moved us in a completely new direction that we hadn't been in before that we would just kind of, we sailed after that. Yeah. The, per- the personal brand aspect. Um, it's funny, actually, the previous podcast um, uh, I, I recorded was with a, a graphic designer and digital artist, um, much like myself. And we we're talking about the, the woes of having like a personal brand and like the kind of, you know, dealing with the ego and dealing with like, you know, like comparison and all this kind of stuff, especially like in the art scene and design scene where there's so much talent out there um, and, and you kind of got to put yourself out there to be able to start, you know, developing yourself uh, professionally. Yeah. Um, tell me about that journey yourself as well, actually. I'm, I'm interested to kind of uh, hear about that. What's funny, I thought you were going to go somewhere different with that. Actually, what's interesting, my the, the woes I have with putting myself out there was never about putting myself out there. Like, mm. my skin is as thick as it gets. Like, I don't care about what anyone thinks of me. I am just like a, I am who I am. I'm like that rare bird at the zoo that you're like, who is, what is that? Like, and I'm very, and I fly proudly. I, I'm half Lebanese, half Filipino. My mother's Catholic. My dad's Lebanese. I've never belonged anywhere. Sorry, my dad's Muslim. I never belonged anywhere. At school, I didn't fit in. I was the only non-white kid up until eighth grade. Um, When I'm with my Muslim family, even they're like, you wear hijab? What what are you doing? Like Lebanese are very liberal. My family's super liberal. So they're like, well, you live in America. Why are you wearing hijab? As a hijabi, I wasn't accepted within Mm. my Muslim family. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. I belonged nowhere. Nowhere. Mm. And it's like that Maya Angelou quote, you belong nowhere, you belong everywhere, you belong nowhere. And that's me. And so I've never tried, I did at an early age, but once you learn you belong nowhere, after that, you don't try and fit in anywhere. You know that Mm. you are blazing your own path. Mm. And so for me, putting myself out there was not an issue. That's just who I am. It came so naturally to me. I think it's the reason why I was successful on social and I built this community of women around the brand because the connections that I was making were very authentic. I, um, you could feel, I I didn't, there was no sense of like, Oh, she's uncomfortable. I was very comfortable. My woes with it kind of hit me in the last couple of years as I was going through my divorce. Mm. And it was the first time where I kind of closed in a bit. Because I'm such mm. an open person, open book. I wear my heart on my sleeve. Literally, you can ask me anything. I, I, I have no qualms sharing who I am. And that was 2012 when Instagram started. All even, um, well, I suppose the only time I kind of was a closed was closed up and I didn't share a piece of my life was when my my brother, my eldest brother, Alir Hamo, he passed away in like in uh, right when Instagram started. But it was so new, anyways. Sorry that to hear that. By the time 2020 hit, you know, and now we're at 330,000 Instagram followers. That's Instagram alone. Now I'm an established public figure within the Muslim community, right? The brand is incredibly established at this point. We're not in 2012 anymore. So it's like I gave all of myself for eight years. Mm. It got to a point where people expected to continue getting all of me, right? Mm. And I'm the one who gave of myself. So it's nobody's fault but my own if I feel a type of way about it when I now want to retract. And so Mm. when I was going through the divorce, and that's something that's so private, it's so personal, it's so gut-wrenchingly difficult, it's heartbreaking, it's a difficult time. Like, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, it could be the most amicable split. It's still the most difficult thing to, to endure. Mm. 
And obviously I'm in no place, space or capacity to be sharing my thoughts about it while I'm going through it, even though people were, what's going on? I don't see Ahmed on social anymore. Is everything okay? I mean, bombarded daily to the point where I got like PTSD. I couldn't even go on Instagram because I didn't want to have to face those questions and comments. Going on lives were so hard. Everyone was asking about it, but I wasn't ready to talk about it yet. I knew the time would come, but I wasn't ready yet. And though that was what I had to go through of like, Mel, you gave yourself all of you. Now you need to take back your own agency and decide for yourself what you want to reveal and give and what you're going to keep close. Cause I gave it all. Mm. And that for me was the woe of, of, of the personal brand. It was like, taking back control of my life, my narrative, my privacy, who I am, having privacy for the first time in my life because I, I don't care about privacy. Um, and it was a really necessary thing for me to go. I, I haven't been on social in two weeks and I have my DMs are blowing up. Like, are you okay, Mel? Where are you at? And I'm okay with it. Like two years ago, a year ago, I might feel a little anxiety about it, but I'm like, you know what? I don't owe anybody anything. Alhamdulillah, the brand is in such a good place where I don't feel like I'm hurting the brand. Um, and ultimately, I got to do me. I got to put myself first. Mm. I'm not feeling it. Mm. Don't do it. Don't do anything that sacrifices self. And unless your heart's in it, don't do it. Because ultimately, you're going to grow resentful of it later. Mm. And I never want to feel that way. And so I'm still trying to traverse this new um, in like space that I'm in now of really defining for myself what, how I want to be a public figure moving forward. I know mm. I'm, I'm, I'm always going to be that. And I aspire towards it because I really believe that's part of my function and purpose on earth. You know, like I said, I'm a trailblazer. I'm a boundary pusher. Um, I know Allah has given me alhamdulillah, incredible gifts and talents, and I know I'm meant to be in the public sphere. I accept it and I welcome it. How that looks, in what capacity, I'm working on it. I'm still figuring it out. I'm in a real, I don't want to say limbo state, but it's a real discovery phase right now. Mm. And it, it, it kind of goes hand in hand also, subhanAllah, with what we were speaking about before you hit record, which is this new world of what social is today with TikTok and Gen Z and the content that is really clicking right now is not necessarily the content I want to create. Mm. Not, I, I don't do anything for numbers. I don't do anything in search of virality. I do it because I hope it adds some value. I hope it's substantive. It's, I like to do it. And I'm still trying to get my bearings because what used to work isn't working anymore. Yeah. People have spoken and I'm not going to keep pushing against something. I'm going to go with the current, not against it. So what does that mean though? Because the new wave that's coming isn't me. It's not mm. me. And there are enough people doing that and it's cool. So where do I live now? I don't know. I'm still trying mm. to figure it out. And it's that coupled with my new exploration of how I'm going to be a public figure, what I'm going to share. You know, I anticipate getting married again. Mm. What is that going to look like? I shared every aspect of my life, my marriage, our relationship. I mean, our fights, everything was public. Mm. I don't want to do that again. And if I, you know, inshallah, whoever my husband is, when he, we get together it has to be a real conversation around like how, you know, I'm a public figure, but what does that mean for us as a couple? Mm, mm. I don't know. I have to figure it all out, but I hope, hopefully I will have learned from the first time around to know 
what about my boundaries are now. Mm. We're in a very like unique time in the world, I think, um, when all of a sudden like these conversations were even like seven years ago, honestly, like talking about your like social media presence um, as, as a public figure would have come across as a bit vapid, as a bit kind of like of a hollow conversation. I mean, I guess even seven years ago, it was still relevant, but like now the the kind of importance of it is so, it's so real, right? Like um, the fact that personal brands or personal profiles have so much more higher engagement than like the nameless brands, right? Like when, for example, look at Elon Musk compared to Tesla and, and you know, SpaceX and stuff. What he says from his personal Twitter account is what actually drives the impact. Okay. Um, and, and you've got these other accounts which are just there basically just pushing out ads and, you know, like, you know, the more technical uh, side of things. Right. Um, so it's, it's a very, very interesting time. And honestly, like, um, for me, like, as, as a creator as well, like, I'm looking at it and I'm, like yourself, you're saying, like, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, where do we fit into all of this stuff, right? Because there is this whole new wave of culture coming from Gen Z, which realistically we can't speak to because we're not part of it okay. um, and, and trying to speak to it is going to be, you know, unauthentic and, and that stuff, people can smell that stuff. People can smell that stuff a mile away when you're, when you're pretending to be something that you're not. That's right. um, so it's a very interesting challenge. Um, so I've not only got this challenge with my own personal brand, but of course I've got this challenge with the Muslim vibe. Um, and I was, you know, before we hit record, I was, I was, I was telling Melanie that, you know, the Muslim vibe now really should just focus on its millennial audience that has always been the core audience of the Muslim vibe. Um, and maybe, you know, like rather than trying to be a broad church that's aiming to bring on young teens, maybe just say, look, you know, there's other organizations, there's other platforms that speak to them better than we can. Um, and that's okay. Uh, but, you know, millennials still need that support and that, um, you know, uh, that cultural kind of uh, texture uh, through content. Melanie, um, coming back to Autijab. Sorry, I know I'm, I'm I'm kind of dabbing in and out of of, of the the conversations. Oh, um, but recently, you guys launched in the UK, I believe. So you've got like a facility in the UK. That's right. Um, so I think that has previously been a big limitation for you to access the Europe market, uh, which is obviously very big and significant. So um, tell us about that journey of of getting into Europe. Sure. Yeah. You know. Customer service and service in general is just our biggest priority. We want people to have the best experience possible. Mm. And a hindrance with that is our international customers who are hit with really long delivery times, custom fees, shipping delivery issues. You know, they can't really return things because they're not going to pay the money to send it all the way back to the U.S., all of these things. And the U.K. market was always our biggest market outside the U.S. It was U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, but in U.K. was always number two. And um, we heard from them, you know, like, I love your products, but this is so difficult for me to purchase. I still do. Or I don't, and I wish I could, you know, it, there was just so much friction there. And so knowing that we wanted to be a global brand and really build our base here in the U.S., obviously we're, a, we're an American brand first and foremost. It's me, it's who I am, it's what I know, um, and it's really intentional that it's an American brand. However, being a global brand that it's based in America was always the goal. And UK was that natural lift uh, post, you know, like, you know, moving out of the US. 
And it's been great because we've been able to alleviate some of those friction points within the customer journey, but then at the same time, allowing ourselves to open up to a whole new community and learning about them and, and what they love and don't love and the products that speak to them or work and don't work has been such a fun journey to learn. Um, Cause our community is so the fabric of, of the Muslim Ummah worldwide is like, I love the, you said the word texture earlier. It's the texture is so beautiful in that every place, every region has its own little way. It's like what you mm-hmm. said about your wife mm-hmm. in California. You're like, Oh, I get it. Right. It's so different. And, uh, to be, to get into a completely new community for me is really exciting because I'm here to help you solve your hijab problems. I want to make hijab easy for you. I want you to love it. I want you to feel beautiful. And I can't do that unless I know you. What are your problems? How can I help you? What are, what are the things you love and don't love? What works for your climate, for your culture, for your community? And opening up in the UK has been this really cool experience of being able to expand um, our horizons and our community base and, and our knowledge base. And so it's been really awesome. What are some of the things that you've found in that journey? Uh, you guys, you, the, uh, I don't mean to say you guys, but you're from London. So kind of, yes. The, what we've learned is the UK market, number one, I think ebbs and flows within the broader, what's in the macros and the micro, like in the United Kingdom in general, the style is, I'll say this, it's not as bright and flashy as Americans. Mm. <laughs> Americans are really cool. I, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a general observation across the board. Yeah. Um, I, I'll tell you, man, honestly, like when I... <laughs> Coming to coming to America, especially California, right? Like, oh god, the the, the culture shock is so real. Um, it's like because in the in the UK, like, so so uh, Jessica, who's our chief editor, uh, she's from Portland, Oregon. Um, she she's she's got such an interesting journey. So she's half Japanese, half American. Okay, um, Riva uh, lived in Dubai for, for some time. And then settled on London. And I was like, look, why out of all places that you've been to, why London? She goes, the culture here is 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 quite modest. And I was like, that's that's an interesting way of putting it, because in, in the UK we're not where we try not to be eccentric. Yep. And so when when someone is eccentric, you're like, whoa, like t- t- take it easy there, buddy. Like, you know, like well, why are you in a good mood? Like that that's the kind of approach. Yeah. Um Unless it's summertime. In summertime, it's, it's a, generally speaking, on, on the hottest day of the year and like when it's snowing, these are the only two times when suddenly like the cultural norms kind of break a little bit and everyone's like prepared to like speak to the next person. Uh-huh. Um, when I came to California, I'll tell you, I, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before. Like I was at like a, a gas station. See, I'm, I'm saying gas station. Like I'm sorry, UK people, petrol station. Um, <laughs> so so I'm there and like the, the guy at the checkout's like, Hey, how's your evening, sir? And I'm, I, I'm like, what? Do you, what do you mean? Like, I literally stumbled. I was, I was, sorry, I just walked off. Now, what do you mean? Why are you asking me how my evening is? Like, I don't, <laughs> I'm here to get gas. Like, you don't do that in the UK. And then, um, so I, I developed like over time. Like, obviously, I've been coming to California very regularly. That, okay, as soon as I come to California, just switch it up. Like, become Mister Happy. All right, mm-hmm. that was fine. Then I went to New York uh, by accident because I missed my flight and then I had to do like a layover in New York. And I was like, okay, let's deploy Mr. Happy over here. 
and that did not work. No. Like they, they were looking at me like, well, why, why, why are you so happy for? It's like 4 a.m. in the morning. Um, and so I was like, oh, wow. So, okay, now I understand that New York has that same kind of London culture to it where it's like, let's not make eye contact and smile at each other. Um, that stuff, that's, that's the, I, love, I love exploring the different cultures. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And isn't it crazy how in the U.S. too that it can exist? Like West Coast versus East Coast versus That's Middle crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And and even even in California, like the cultural difference between like Southern California and Northern California, like I'm like, what's going on here? Like even between regions, even between like OC and LA folk and like Inland Empire folk, like I've I've recently learned that there's like these kind of like cultural differences, like driving styles, and I'm like, whoa, like these are like imaginary borders. These borders don't really exist, but like somehow uh culture shift so yeah it's, it's it's fascinating it's fascinating tell me something else you've learned about the uk so far um well yeah it's it's so concentrated right so there are a million mm. muslims in london alone and so that kind of that um that diversity in culture from region to region doesn't really exist with you guys it's like a it's much more homogenous than it is in the mm. u.s mm. which is great for us because what we've noticed is how that translates is the, our best sellers are neutrals, you know, really like calm colors. The brights are not not hitting. The prints, like, forget about it. Y'all, y'all ain't trying to rock a print. Forget that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's cool because it allows us to really streamline also the products that then work. And you've mm. spoken and cool. This is what works. So let mm. us give you more of that, and which is awesome because you know a New York hijabi versus a SoCal hijabi totally different, and mm -hmm. you have to cater to both. But a London hijabi is a London hijabi is a London hijabi, right? Like, like, and that's the majority of where our customers are coming from in the UK is London and around there. And so it's been really cool and simple <laughs> to be like. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, like even even beyond London, I think you'll find like the Muslim culture is fairly it's fairly streamlined, like it's it's fairly uh, one. Um, and I think that's like you know how we were talking about how like. Uh, like post 9-11 and this like exploration of Muslim identity and confidence, right? So what's basically happened is mainly because you've got like, like you said, a million Muslims in, in London, right? And you've got entire neighborhoods, which would like be Muslim majority neighborhoods, okay? Um, and you've got Somali Muslims there, you've got Afghan Muslims, you've got Bosnian Muslims, you've got um, obviously your Pakistanis, your Indians, you know, uh, you, you'll even have like Indonesian, Malaysian, like this whole melting pot, right? And now essentially the kids are going to school together, you know? They're hanging out together. Yeah. So they they, their cultures basically like meshed into one and it became like this British Muslim kind of culture, right. which is like, it's, it's unique thing. Um, and, and obviously London has its own specific spice to it, which, and, I, and I'm always going to miss that. Um, and, 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 and yeah, only... I think the only difference you'll find in London is uh, that will affect how one goes about uh, expressing themselves. It's probably financial. Yes. Um, so I think that's that's the one part where you will see that okay, this is how people behave a little bit differently, and that's usually dependent on 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 on, on like the financial background. So uh, in in the UK, you'll have really rich Muslims. But you'll also have really, really poor Muslims, like really, like poor, poor families. Like I come from like a really, really poor, poor background, um, by like you know the the poverty standards. Um, 
over here i haven't seen that so much in america like i haven't seen that i think yeah. generally speaking muslims here are okay yeah. um but in the, in the uk is that part that plays a big difference into like the decisions people will make when it comes to where they purchase their hijabs from mm-hmm. right because mm-hmm. like you're going against like for example you're going against the likes of like uh, a place called Whitechapel market right which is a, a famous place in the UK, london where hijabis will go and buy their hijabs hey, melanie there you're buying hijabs for like two dollars like three dollars right right um and so the middle eastern market where you guys have the luxury of being able to go somewhere physically exactly yeah purchase them off the street in the way you can when you're in lebanon dubai india pakistan right we Mm. don't have that in the u.s unless you're unless Mm. you live in dearborn or pockets Mm. of queens we really don't have that here Mm-hmm. Um, and so our competition over there is much different than it is mm-hmm. in the U.S. And mm-hmm. the price sensitivity, like you said, is very different than in the U.S. It's either like, yeah, I can afford it and I, and I, and this is what I prefer. Or like, I'm so priced out of this. It's ridiculous. Like your prices yeah. are so exorbitant. And what is in like, haram, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah, it's expensive, but I'll still purchase it. Even if I'm not necessarily, I can't. It's not that they can't afford it, but it's like it—they'll still grab one or two. Mm. You know what I mean? It's not this like appalled feeling of like what? You know what I mean? It's—it's—it's it's, yeah. it, it's very interesting the response mm. of our price point in the U.S. versus the U.K. You're right. It's—it's—it's it's, it's vastly different because of the, the socioeconomic status of the Muslim community in both countries. Yeah, yeah, and uh, like I said, like. Because cause I'm obviously from the UK, we mentioned this. For me, seeing these differences, that's become like a new fascinating experience, you know? Because um, growing up in one place and then and then being th- like right now, for example, where I am, uh, I can't move my camera around, but like we're in a place called the High Desert. Um, so this is like Redneck County, basically. Um, so like up in the mountains, I mean, I say redneck to be fair, everyone's pretty nice here, but they, they do seem to be a lot of Trump supporters here. Um, and and like over here, the halal food situation is is like, whoa, it's, it's, it's a struggle, right? Like, non-existent, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, you're from Dearborn and I've been Dearborn and I love it. Like Detroit, sorry, uh, Detroit, Dearborn, they're pretty close to each other. And like the halal food situation there is, is heavenly. It's amazing. It's like, oh my God, everything's there. Totally. Um, but o- over here, it's like really bad. Like as in, we celebrate when it's like, oh, we found out, oh, there's a halal ingredient in a product. It's like, hey, we're going to go eat it. Um, but yeah, just exploring those those differences and how that, I guess, impacts communities and their behaviors. Um, that for me is like a really fascinating uh, journey. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, hmm. UK, UK Muslims, I've observed, tend to be a bit more conservative than U.S. Muslims, and it's really interesting that caveat you just mentioned, it's like accessibility is real. And so if you don't have access to halal food, let's say, so you'll give yourself a pass because the concession is there in Islam. Mm. It's not a matter of halal or haram anyway, because I guess that's a matter of opinion, but it doesn't matter. The concession is there. We, we There are Muslims in the U.S. who do not have access to halal food. And so what can they do? Whereas mm. in London, it's that's not a problem. So to have a more conservative outlook, you can. You can practice Islam in that way because it's accessible mm. to you. Mm. You might not have that in the U.S. And so you might take mm. a more 
I don't want to say liberal approach, but you may take a concession that a UK Muslim won't take. Yeah. And, and honestly, that, that kind of accessibility, um, that density, that there are pros and cons to it, right? Like, because obviously the pros are when you have lots of Muslims in, in, in one kind of concentrated area, they're going to start businesses that facilitate the needs of other Muslims. So whether that's a halal butchers, whether that's, you know, a guy selling uh, prayer mats, whether that's a, you know, a uh, hijab store, whatever it might be, okay? Um, but then on, on the flip side of that, um, there is also, like, um, this idea of, like, being desensitized to making halal decisions, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, for example... Um, over here, um, over here in, in in the UK, there is less questioning as to whether or not something may be halal or haram. Like in terms of, especially like fast food shops, okay. And it, but then you have to question like, how is it possible for literally a thousand shops in this in this small area to be serving halal chicken, and like chickens just like flying in and out of the door like nonstop? How is it possible for it to be halal and sustainable? Yeah. So someone's probably lying about like the halal supply chain, right? And and so we do have those kind of issues there as well, where that is that is happening, where you'll have like people cheating Muslims. Um, you'll have like Hindu shop owners or, or you know like you know people that aren't actually Muslim claiming things are halal oh, wow. because that's just like the well that's the cultural norm, right? Like in, it should be halal. That's how you're going to get extra people in. Mm. So there are these uh, there are these kind of uh, challenges that we have there. And then the other thing is as well is that I guess in the UK making decisions about, for example, modesty or expressing your Islamic identity, they're not challenging challenging decisions. It'll probably be more challenging to decide not to do those things because mm -hmm. you're going to stand out more. Mm -hmm. um, whereas over here, um, like uh, in the US, for you to, for especially in California, for a woman to decide she's going to wear the hijab. That's like, that's true bravery, man. Like as in, I, I've seen it, like as in, that's real bravery uh -huh. um, because cause it's so different from the, the kind of aesthetic that you see around you. That's right. um, that being said, actually, the, um, and it's, sorry, we're having a conversation about fashion, but like I've noticed hair anyway, um, contrary to what I had believed before I came, people generally dress quite modestly over here in Cali. Yeah, like as in, I mean, maybe there are some parts of like downtown LA or like, you know, the Hollywood areas and stuff and obviously beaches, but generally everyone seems to be like, okay, here and like sweats, just like just hoodies and sweatpants. Like no one's like over the top here. I think that's a sign of the times too. It's kind of like the vibe of fashion right now anyways, is, is, oh, is leisure, comfort. Yeah. Post COVID. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Working from home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what's next for Hotijab? Oh gosh, we're in such a rebuild phase. So we have really, we were, again, we were kind of talking about this before we got on, but we were talking about the journey of an entrepreneur and I read this quote once and it is so true. You define the success of an entrepreneur based on whether or not they're giving up. Like, mm. The only time that you are not a successful entrepreneur is when you give up. As long as you're continuing and you're going and you're still putting it in and trying to make it work, that's considered success <laughs> because this is such a difficult journey. 
It is a roller coaster. It is, uh, it never stops. It is 24 seven. You are eat, sleeping, dreaming, thinking, vacationing. It's on your brain. You never turn off. I just woke up to a dream of <laughs> my whole team and was in my dream. And where we are right now. So my, my ex-husband, former husband, he exited the company from the day-to-day operations earlier this year. And it was the first time that I've had to run the company alone. And at first it was terrifying, terrifying. In fact, I'll be completely honest, a big, big, big concern I had going through the divorce was what's going to happen to the company. We don't have any children, but this is our baby. Like this Mm. is our baby that we have grown and birthed from infancy, you know, infancy to its later stages. And I was so concerned, like, what's going to happen to the business. And ultimately I had to put myself first, but it was a huge concern. And subhanAllah, Allah led me through the journey. Like we got divorced and then it took a little less than a year until he exited the company formally. And in that time, Alhamdulillah, I was being prepped for that moment because not only were there people on the team who kind of were taking over his role to the part, to the point where he became almost redundant, but also I had to go through things that allowed me to then get to the point where I could do this alone. And it gave me such strength and power to realize I can do this by myself because before Mm. I didn't think I could truly, I didn't think I could as like strong and confident as I am. I really didn't believe I could do this alone. I thought the company would just fall. Not only is that not true, but I have so much strength, intellect, power, vision inside of me that I can take this now and run it the way I want it to be run because him and I differed on many things on a high level of how we wanted this company to go. And I would defer to him on his side of the business and he would defer to me on mine. I was all branding product, you know, social face of the brand, all that. He's all back end ops, finance, that type of stuff. So to take on his responsibilities turnover every single leaf, every nook and cranny of the company that I wasn't looking at before and saying that doesn't make any sense or yeah, that did make sense. Let's continue. But nevertheless, doing it on my own terms, what I believe is best for the company has been so refreshing, game changing. Uh, It's given me so much strength and power and confidence in myself. Like I never knew I had this. I'm such a confident person as it is. I was like, wow, Look how much capacity we actually have when Allah puts you through the journey of learning. You don't need anyone on this work earth. You don't need anybody. You got yourself, mm. you got Allah. That's all you need. And you are blessed to have people in your life that Allah puts in your life to aid you in your journey. But ultimately, this story is my own. This is my journey. I'm the main character. And these other people around me are supporting cast. Where before, I wasn't putting myself in that position necessarily. So that's a real roundabout way of answering the question. But where we are right now is in we're in real rebuild mode. We're burning everything down. And it's mostly in the back end. Like our customer won't feel it necessarily. But things that we did from an operational perspective that I now am saying, "Mm -mm, we're not doing it like that. We're burning it all down. We're just like starting from square one, ground zero all over again and rebuilding. So that's where we are right now. And I'm not really too focused on new product, new collections right now, because like I said, I need to get that foundation really, really strong again um, before I can get into that piece. 
So we're in a rebuild mode. I, I don't know what's next. All I know is I want. Well, that's that's what's next. That's what's next. The, the rebuilding. Yeah, yeah. Rebuilding. I, I can totally relate to that. It's, it's, it's funny you mention it because um, so similarly, like with the Muslim vibe. Uh, so it was obviously co-founded uh, by myself and uh, my best friend Salim, and Salim left last year, and and basically. <laughs> Basically, I've been in the same position as you. It's like, you know, I was dealing with content. I was dealing with like the, you know, the branding side of things. And now all of a sudden I've got to do math and, you know, payroll and all these like logistical and signing documents and all this kind of stuff. But I'm just like, that's like not, like I had deliberately like not done that stuff because it's like, that's not my forte, right? And I was like, okay, I'd rather have someone uh, who, who is more kind of, uh, can pay more attention to detail when it comes to those things. Um, so then when, when, when he, when he did resign last year, um, that like flipped the script of my life. Cause it was like, um, you know, like people that knew me and Salim described it as a marriage. <laughs> like they, that's how close we were. Um, I mean, we still are. And, and, and basically like, you know, I had to now relearn everything, right? Like I had to rebuild everything. Like you just mentioned, I had to go through like, why are we paying this? Uh, yeah. no, we, we need to scrap that we need to do this yeah. um so i to totally understand um and I even even now like you know it's, it's been what pretty much one year uh almost to the date um that that uh you know that that decision came about and now having done it like solo for a year i'm now able to and alhamdulillah like in ramadan like i took some time off just to specifically think about okay what is the next thing what's the next step um i'm able to understand that now and like you said rebuilding or to job ground up, for me, it's now, okay, you know, the Muslim vibe just needs to be simplified now. Like as in, yeah. just simplify it and make sure that whatever we are doing is actually adding value and mm -hmm. don't just do things for the sake of doing it. Totally. Hence why now, like this podcast, we're not going to be doing a video because, well, it's not like we were crushing on YouTube. There are certain podcasts that did really well, but is it really worth that time and effort right. compared to the fact that most of our listeners are listening on Apple Podcasts or whatever they listen, uh, wherever they listen, listen to podcasts from? Um, so why kind of exert all that extra energy and effort when it's not really uh, useful to anyone? Totally. Um, so yeah, that entrepreneurial journey—it's—it's—it's—it's uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's one that will continue um, as long as it continues, basically, isn't it? Yep. Inshallah. Inshallah. You know, you're still willing to put in the work, and I'm in a real phase, like I said, of discovery right now of what my next move is, what I want out of life even. Mm. Like at this point in my life, I'm at a place I never thought I would be. You don't, you never get married thinking you're not going to be married for life. Mm. And so I find myself, I'm like living in New York City, single, like never thought I would be single ever again um, with this company and, you know, everything around me. And it's, so different than anything I ever thought, but it's beautiful because it still allows me to dictate what I want out of life. Like I, mm. I'm at a precipice right now of I can do anything. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. And so what do you want? And sometimes mm. asking yourself, what do you want is the scariest question because when you're in autopilot and things are happening to you, you just accept it. It's all qadr Allah and you move mm. with it. And that's great. When you have to make your own decisions of like where you're going to move and how it sometimes is very frightening. Mm. Like, mm. you know, they say if Allah gave you everything you wanted, you wouldn't be able to handle it. 
Mm. It's why it comes in stages and why you have to want it first. You have to really want it before Allah will give it to you. And mm. that's where I'm at. I'm just trying to figure out like, you know, I never, ever, 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 ever wanted kids. Never. Mm. We were trying, but in my heart, I didn't want kids. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I can't explain it. SubhanAllah, for the first time in my life, I want kids. Where did that mm. come from? I don't know. But, you know, like life is just, it's crazy how it works. Yeah. And so... Yeah. The things that I'm thinking about now are so different than even a year ago. And yeah. um, I'm really trying to rediscover myself and go back inward to myself of what I want. Because mm. I think I lived for so long prioritizing other people mm. and their happiness and what they want before me. And now to be in a place where I can really truly ask myself, well, what do you want now? And only mm. move from that place because alhamdulillah, I'm unfettered. There's nothing and nobody tying me down. So moving from a place strictly of what do you want, Melanie, is both exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh it's very interesting because uh, it seems like uh, mentally we're we're in we're in very similar places. Um, so the last last podcast that I did um, was with a graphic designer, Mustali Raj, phenomenal graphic designer, um, and so we really connected and. Because we were talking about design, like I got really like emotional and really like passionate about it. Um, maybe a bit too much, like honestly, I think the 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 sound bars were off the off the charts, right? Because because it started like because he was someone who had basically tapped into that raw creative energy where he was doing what makes him happy, but also ties in with like his with his like his like fitra and like his natural yearning towards what he's good at and his talent. And when that alignment occurs, yeah. you see a human being flourish and like, yeah. you see it, you feel it, like the, that mm -hmm. kind of sense of like contentment and all that kind of stuff. And I, I've been away from that, like that alignment for a while, right? Um, there's been moments when I've come close to it, but I've been away from it for a while because there's all these like expectations and burdens. And I was mm -hmm. like, but you're the CEO of the Muslim vibe now. If it fails, then it's because of you, right? Because it's like, it, you know, these extra voices coming in and it's like, oh, but what about this? And what about that? And, you know, there's, there's salaries to pay. And if you fail, then they fail. Like all these extra voices and, and burdens and expectations and all that kind of stuff. And um, basically, like after that podcast, um, and not because of that, but I had already planned it. Like, you know, the last two weeks of Ramadan, I took off. Um, the first week I spent with my family. Second week, I... Uh, spent solo basically um i did a road trip to denver colorado uh to see my good friend nuri and um i stopped at zion national park it was later Qadr. i was doing my kind of uh amal and stuff over there and and that's basically the question that i was asking it wasn't it wasn't what do you want um although i guess in, in the same way it is it was what do i do because Melanie, for me, one of the biggest challenges that's happened since I've become CEO of the Muslim Vibe and like having to like, you know, run it and be the face of it and now the face of the podcast and stuff. People are like, hey, hey, what do you do? And mm. I'm like, mm, like, what, what, what do I, I don't know. Like, uh, I can make branding, I can do websites, I can do SEO, I can do Google Ads, I can do this, I can do that. Oh, and by the way, I'm also the CEO of a, of a platform with a million followers. I, I, can, I can video edit, I host a podcast. Like, <laughs> what is it? What, what, what are you doing, right? It's just chaos. And like, it took my good friend to basically like dismantle the expectations I had made of myself. Yeah. When I said, no, look, 
Nori, look, this is what I actually want to do. And he said, no, you don't. And I'm like, no, 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 I really want to, I want this to become so big and I want to, I want to change the world. And he's like, no, you don't. And I'm like, but then like he, 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 he didn't basically budge, right? And it needs a good friend like that sometimes that doesn't budge and makes you like hair yourself and be like, you don't want that $1 million funding because that's going to be chaos for you. And I'm like, ah, yeah, you're right. Uh, what do I want? Okay. So then Alhamdulillah, like got closer towards the answers. Um, but the chaos of the entrepreneurial mind continues um, because the world is ever evolving. Um, the dunya has its pressures, family has its pressures. Uh, and of course, internally, we have our own ambitions, which can be distractions at times as well. Um, Melanie, it's been, uh, it's been thoroughly uh, fun speaking to you, actually. Um, I feel like uh, it's, it's been quite a deep, uh, personal one-to-one conversation. Um, I wanted to ask you if you had any advice, and sorry to make this sound so cliche, but to like any young Muslim woman who is venturing into the world of business. Hmm. You know, it's what you just said. It's knowing yourself so well what you do really, really well, what you're so good at, the things you do so well that most people can't do as well as you. And when that aligns with what you're passionate about, the things that keep you up at night, the things that make your blood boil, the things that when people bring it up in conversation, you're like, oh, I have a million things to say about this. When that alignment happens, it's magic. It's pure magic. You move so effortlessly, you glide because there's zero effort. There's no resistance. It's just Mm. the pure magic of the gifts that Allah gave you combined with whatever it is on earth, like your actual, it is, it is your purpose. It is your purpose. It's you found your purpose on earth. And when you found that it's so effortless. And Mm. so I think a lot of times, and this is general advice for any person, not just a Muslim, not just a woman. But it's oftentimes we think, okay, I want to start a business. And it's a lot of the time geared towards a financial profit. And that's understandable. We live in a world we need to make money. I get that. But when you do that, it often is, okay, how can I make money? All right, then what should I sell? And you know what? Just to make this palatable, let me sprinkle in some purpose in there because otherwise no one's going to care. Mm, mm. Where that should be completely flipped. It is your purpose first. What is fueling what you are doing? And Mm. then it's the product that you can sell that fuels that purpose. And then the profit comes. It always comes. But if you try and do it the other way around, you will struggle. You will, you might get the money because people have, you know, made a ton of money off of some product that is, it just hits at that moment. But trust me, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Mm. You eventually will mm. hit a wall where there's no purpose behind it. So you you lose motiv- motivation. Maybe you get some money or done with it. That was, You fulfilled the goal, right? The goal was money. Whereas if it's about a purpose first, and my purpose with this company is to build a world. This is our mission statement. Build a world where every woman feels comfortable and confident. I'm nowhere near that yet. And I probably never will get there, but I will continue working towards that my whole life in whatever capacity that looks like, whether it's with this company or elsewhere. I want Muslim women to feel comfortable in their identities and who they are, whether they wear hijab or not. 
And mm. that's a purpose that fuels me. And in a way in which I've been able to find a business that allows me to fuel that purpose is through hijab. Mm. And that's what worked for me. So it's, it's that magic and it came so naturally and, and effortlessly. And, and the barakah comes pouring in because you know that what you're doing is in alignment with what God wants for you. It's not in resistance to what God wants for you. It's, it's precisely what God wants you to do. Mm. Flow. And yeah. getting to that state of flow is like, it's pure bliss. Yeah. And it's exhilarating. It's the reason why you can trade in a, a nine to five for a five to nine. It's the reason why you allow yourself to go absolutely mental as an entrepreneur, right? Otherwise, why mm-hmm. would we do this? Mm-hmm. But it's that purpose, that motivation that's like that keeps you going. And without that, you'll burn out. You'll burn out so quickly. Yeah. No, I, I can relate to that a lot. And, and what you said there, um, specifically about flow. Um I don't think that's the first time we've actually heard that on this podcast. I think that seems to be like a recurring thing. And I think ultimately we're all as human beings trying to find that flow. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to something recently. I think it was a TED, I think it was a TED talk or something like this. Uh, it was a, it's, a, uh, it's a proverb in Feng Shui, which is that birds do not fly. They are flown. And fish do not swim. They are carried. Um, and, and And essentially... That's that's what we're trying to aspire towards, right? When there's Allah's will, and we're able to align ourselves with it, then we're gonna be we're gonna be flown with it, right? We're not gonna need to exert any energy to flap our wings. It, the wind will carry us, right? Ooh, so all up and down. That really that hit me. Yeah, that that, that hit me when I heard it as well. Um, and may Allah give us all the opportunity to feel that sukun and that sense mm-hmm. of alignment, inshallah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melanie, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, it's, it's probably one of, been one of my favorite podcasts, um, and that's what I love about American guests. By the way, you guys are so real. Um, there's no, <laughs> there's no like facade where it's like, oh no, I must nah. talk a certain way. It's just real from the heart, yeah, um, and it allows allows for meaningful conversation. So I really appreciate you making the time uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and sharing with us today. Oh, my pleasure. This was so great. I love doing podcasts because of that. It's the long form and being able to just, you know, be completely raw and real in a long, I can do that at any time, but in a 15 second snippet on like stories, it's difficult, right? So Mm. they're some of my favorite things to do. So thank you for giving me the opportunity and thank you guys for being such amazing partners with Hot Hijab as well. It's been, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Great. And I, and talking to you in this last hour, uh, now I understand why, because I see who's at the helm and super like-minded. So it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. Asalaamu Alaikum. Wa Alaikum That was my conversation with Melanie. If you've made it to the end, congratulations. You're, you're a special human being. Um, this is kind of like, uh, you know, at the end of Marvel films where you wait till the end of the credits and you get like a little special bonus. Uh, so in this special bonus, if you're listening right now, Um, I'm going to ask you very kindly if you could suggest me some topics and also guests that you want me to speak to that would be really helpful Um, this is at the end of the day a podcast for you guys uh, anyone who's listening so you know I really want to kind of get some uh, better feedback from you guys so I know uh, what you're more interested in are you interested in like topic based conversations are you interested in you know special guests 
what is it um, that you feel will be most uh, you know like enjoyable for yourself and like what you want to get from this podcast so inshallah if you can help me with that that'd be great my email address is in the description below and uh, yeah till next week or in the next podcast assalamu alaikum